pediatric speech-language pathologist, and welcome to Teach Me to Talk's podcast. I'm so grateful you're here. Today's show is all about late talking, and we're going to review the latest research so that we can make sure that our knowledge base is up to date. This is really, really important for us as therapists who work in early intervention programs or other pediatric programs because we want to use this information when we counsel parents so that they can make the best, most informed decisions about their own children. Now, this information that I'm going to be presenting today is from an extensive review of the literature. Most of the information can be found at ASHA's practice portal page. Now, if you are a speech-language pathologist, you should be familiar with what that is. And for those of you who aren't, I'll explain it. ASHA is the American Speech and Hearing Association or Speech Language and Hearing Association, and it's our national uh, credentialing organization for speech pathologists here in the United States. And so there is a section on their website that has just all kinds of information that's research-based for the benefit of therapists, for the benefit of the families that we serve. And so again, most of this information is from their section called late language emergence. Now, that may be a new term for you, even as a therapist, but commonly this is referred to as late talking. And that's the term that we're going to use for this podcast. And I'll be sharing some other terminology that we can discuss as we move forward uh, to uh, differentiate late talkers from other subsets of children. But right now we're just talking about late talkers uh, in general. So let's start with what the, the most commonly accepted definition of a late talker is. So what is late talking? Other names that uh, physicians may call late talking would be speech or language delay. But when we really officially define late talking, a late talker is a child who is not putting together two words by 24 months and does not have a base spontaneous vocabulary of at least 50 words. And it's also a child who has no other diagnosed uh, developmental delay in any other domain. And that would be a social issue, a motor issue, or a cognitive issue. So that may be a different definition that you as a therapist think of. You may be like parents who commonly use the term late talking for all kids who aren't talking by two. And so that's, uh, or maybe even, maybe not even two, maybe you don't even put that age requirement on it as most of us don't. And so again, we want to talk about what this definition is and how you can share it with parents and how you can differentiate late talking from, again, other kinds of more serious developmental issues. Now, why is that important? Because when parents don't understand that that what's going on with their child, how it relates to a condition that they may think that their child is likely going to grow out of anyway, <laughs> when they don't have accurate information, they're not able to make the best decisions about their kids. And again, that's why it's so important that we as therapists stay up to date with the latest research with what uh, studies are showing us about late talking in toddlers and early preschoolers. So let's talk about that formal definition. So in order to get that definition of a late talker, you had to be at least 24 months, have less than 50 words, not be doing any phrases, and have no other developmental delays. And so let's kind of break that down. So as an SLP or another therapist, a developmental therapist or interventionist, whatever you call yourself in your state, an OT, a teacher, whatever, a grandparent, whatever you are. So that you understand exactly what this means. And so again, let's talk about that 24 month requirement. Now, lots of us, because of that kind of um, 
accepted 24 months have to be two before we're going to call you a late talker. A lot of us really don't don't really hold on to that milestone that we all learned in grad school or even undergrad, which was what? Kids typically have 50 words and start combinations on their own by the time they're 18 months. So when we've allowed that extra six months there, we've already accounted for things like do boys talk later than girls, things like uh, we kids who were on the slower end of language learning, if we were looking at the bell curve, who were on the left side of the bell curve versus right there in the middle with typical development or right, which would be above average. We've accounted for all that with that six-month gap. So we as SLPs and other therapists don't have to really do anything beyond that. And sometimes when I talk to therapists, they'll talk to me about their clinical decision making or when a parent shares a story with me, they'll say, well, I had him evaluated by early intervention and the speech pathologist said, he's a boy, he's going to talk later, he already has a few words, she's not too worried about him. Now, <laughs> mom could have been leaving out some of those things, but the truth is we can't really do a lot of that fudging with our own individual uh, bars there with our without using again with without some other factors coming into play and we're going to talk about that and again the parents who share that kind of story may not share all the details so that I quite understand it but again as SLPs we've got to stick to what the research tells us and stick to what our milestones tell us and so again we don't have to do a lot of uh, fudging around with what a child's delay is and certainly I hope that you're not doing that uh, the next part of that is in uh, we talked about the truly average language development we had those 50 words by 18 months but let's talk about what the guidelines are in typical language development for a 24 month old we're saying as long as you have 50 words and are starting to do some phrases on your own that's typical development you're going to be fine that's okay but look at what typical development really is for a 24 month old average kids kids who are right at that standard score of 100 at that 50th percentile have two to three hundred words by the time they're 24 months now when we're taking a kid who has about 50 words and a kid who has 200 250 300 words in a preschool classroom even though we're looking at the kid with 50 words and saying oh we're not going to worry too much about you you're within the realm of normal we also have to realize what typical development really is now will you share that with the parent to further increase their heartbreak <laughs> for a child who's over 24 months who's only using a handful of words sometimes yes that's still necessary to talk about so that they really understand and when they are making decisions about their own children as in are we going to go forward with this speech therapy or are we going to wait and see as maybe our pediatrician recommended or grandma recommended or the lady down the street recommended we need to really be sure that we sure that we are sharing accurate information so again parents can make the best decisions for their children uh, let's also talk about the phrase part now combining words into phrases is something that naturally will happen when we increase a child's uh, base vocabulary so that he gets it about that 50 word level. Now lots of times when we have kids who come to us for an evaluation a parent will report or we will notice phrases or we will they will be wonderful little imitators and that is fantastic. <laughs> Imitation is one of the pre-linguistic skills that we teach in early intervention so that children will go on to learn how to talk and imitate sounds and words and begin to communicate and use those meaningfully. However, when we have a kid at two who is still really 
firmly entrenched in that imitation phase that we typically see 18 to 21 months or or again as we edge toward 24 months we want to see more spontaneous generation of those phrases so imitation although it's wonderful really doesn't count in this definition for uh, late talking if a kid is is only imitating those phrases or let's say a kid is using lots of echolalic phrases and we know echolalia is strongly linked with autism when there's no really when they're just imitating what they've heard when we when again I don't want to get into all that communicative intent and I'm, I'm not going to go there I'm just saying when a phrase is purely imitated or when it even when it's holistic let's say that we have phrases like I got it where to go what's that or even something simple like thank you or all done sometimes parents will not realize that that's a, a two, it's two words technically but their child has learned it as one holistic phrase and certainly as an SLP you know that but you need to be talking with parents about that and talking about holistic phrases and how they're different from spontaneously used phrases or spontaneously or self-generated phrases and so we talk about parents with terminology like that and as an SLP in early intervention or in a school setting or even in a clinical setting we're going to be sharing that information with other team members who may say well he's already using phrases and you may have to say well he's technically using phrases but that he's got a lot you know I don't really hear any novel two-word phrases that he's generated on his own these seem to be well rehearsed or overlearned phrases which again fantastic <laughs> for a kid who's been a late talker but at the same time we really can't always use that to base our decision on uh, whether a kid again we don't want to give kids credit for things that they're not yet doing because we overestimate their skills and will not work on things when they truly need help or we start with a level start with goals that are just too high it's just unrealistic for them if we think a kid's already doing phrases when he's really just doing single words and imitating a lot of phrases or using a lot of holistic phrases we're not going to really work on that we're going to skip on and try to increase his mean length of utterance so that he's doing three word phrases and even bump up to some little four word sentences when really he has hasn't mastered putting two words together and pulling those pieces from the various uh, parts of speech that he has available to him in his current expressive vocabulary. And so you've got to be super, super, super careful about that when you're talking about that with uh, parents. And so uh, for a kid to have spontaneously generated phrases, he needs to be, again, mixing and matching the words from his existing vocabulary. So so things that he comes up with, you know, bye-bye mama, bye-bye dada, bye-bye book, you know, he's mixing mixing bye-bye with other nouns or things like for refusal or protest saying no shoe or uh, no milk or uh, anything that he does again as a requesting word you know more cookies more milk more water uh, you know more go even if it's kind of an original phrase you wouldn't necessarily hear that uh, or or an adult wouldn't necessarily say it that way but it makes perfect sense to a child I want to I want to go again I want I want you to do that again with me and so we look at those spontaneous phrases and that's a really really big marker by two as well all right so let's look at that second part of the late talker definition no other diagnosed disabilities or developmental delays in any other sensory cognitive or motor domain so that really kind of covers it for us as early developmental professionals when we have a kid we don't really need to call kids late talkers if we know gosh he's got some social concerns I'm not really seeing a ton of joint attention or eye contact here. We can't really call him a late talker with that formal definition. We know that because a kid has delays in social issues too, and there's some, you know, maybe he's not responding to his name. Maybe he's not following directions.
emotions. And we think about that as a language skill, but it's also a cognitive skill. I mean, it's certainly there's receptive language there, and we certainly are going to talk about this in a minute, where we look at kids with receptive delays and expressive delays. But at the same time, what my point is here, that to really, for a child to fully meet the definition of late talker, there's nothing else going on. So if he's been a late walker, that just automatically uh, limits his inclusion into this category of kids. And so that's something, again, that we need to think about. And let's look beyond sensory. Now, sensory issues to us as SLPs are going to mean, you know, how regulated is a kid? Is he busy or is he uh uh, just sedentary or is he does he need to be revved up a little bit has he you know lapsed back into that inactivity where which where he's withdrawn and again we got to get his little system pumped up enough we're not really talking about sensory issues like that I'm talking about even more um, basic sensory issues like hearing and vision. Now we all know as SLPs, but in case there are parents watching this and I know you're there on YouTube or listening uh, to the podcast, anytime we have a kid who's suspected of late talking, the very first thing that we want to do is get a hearing test or an audiological evaluation. Kids have to hear before they can produce language. Language is an auditory system and so we always want to make sure that that's ruled out and sometimes you'll get a kid, usually not in state early intervention programs because that's usually taken care of before uh, they would get to you in the referral process but if you're in private practice or even maybe a kid has just kind of slipped through the cracks if you are in a community-based program or hospital program or uh, even in a school-based program and you realize gosh this kid is not talking but I don't see any evidence here that we've had a formal check of hearing ability we always want to do that so as a parent if you are just tuning into and first starting to be concerned about your a baby's language development, that's one thing that you can certainly ask a pediatrician for the next time you're there or even call today and say, I'm concerned about his communication skills. He's not developing the words that he should be uh, by his, by, based on how old he is. We, I know we got that universal hearing uh, screen when he was a baby, but can we just go ahead and get a formal audiologic assessment? And a lot of times that'll just get the ball rolling. Now, more often than not, you are not going to find uh, a significant hearing loss that you that has gone undetected. You've noticed with your baby that he startles and that he, uh, you, you notice his reactions to sound. And as, as an SLP or another therapist, you certainly are noticing that within the first few minutes of when you meet a child. But many times we find children who have fluctuating hearing loss due to middle ear fluid or recurrent ear infections. And so we know that because <laughs> kids, when they have that middle ear fluid they are not hearing like they should be their sensation uh, sounds like they are underwater or in a swimming pool and just think about how difficult that would be for that little guy to learn language learn completely new words and link meaning to what he's seeing going on around him so for that reason recurrent ear infections are a big risk for late talking and so if that's something that you're uh, thinking about if you're a parent in your own child's history you know gosh he's had four or five or ten ear infections and he's two that's a big deal and so you certainly are going to want to repeat a hearing test to see if your child needs tubes or uh, 
antibiotics, whatever you and the physician decide would be the appropriate uh, course of treatment, but you've got to get that hearing ability cleared up. All right, so we talked about the age with 24 months, we talked about 50 words, we talked about spontaneous phrase generation, and we talked about no other developmental or medical issue that would interfere with the acquisition of language skills. But the truth is, <laughs> until the child, unless the child already has a medical diagnosis like Down syndrome or cerebral palsy or any other, again, uh, diagnosis or risk factor or something that the physician or some other medical professional has helped a parent with, parents may not have recognized that there are any other developmental problems. And so kids come to us just as kind of a speech-only concern when there really are other less obvious developmental differences. And so we're going to discuss that too. So let me say one thing that you might be thinking of. If you are an early interventionist, and we talked about late talking there, can you diagnose or identify late talking before 24 months? Absolutely. And we all know that we're going to continue to use our formal uh, standardized test or even our, you know, our, our criterion reference test so that we can see what a child should be doing by what ages. Uh, and But certainly when we see kids who are younger than that 24-month level who aren't meeting those milestones and who aren't, again, according to your test results who meet the eligibility requirements of your program, certainly we're going to, uh, of course, qualify those kids and talk about that and begin to provide some assessment intervention for those families. Pediatricians are also supposed to do this too. <laughs> By recommendation of the American Academy of Pediatrics, kids are supposed to have developmental screenings as a part of their well-child checkups when they are nine months, 18 months, 24 months, and 30 months. And so if, the, if you are a parent and you're thinking, I don't really think my pediatrician does that, or, or maybe you don't recognize that how he or she is communicating with you about your child's development. That might be something that you want to ask the next time that you're in the pediatrician's office. Or as an SLP, you might want to say that to a parent. Is your pediatrician doing those uh, during your well baby checks, asking you questions or having you fill out a little checklist about your child's development, that's super, super important. And parents need to know that that's standard practice or best practice for a pediatrician so that they can, again, make decisions about who participates in the health and uh, developmental well-being of their own children. And so we have to look at that as well, too. Let me talk to you about what the nine-month criteria are so that you will, as therapists, be aware that this is what pediatricians are asking about and you can kind of understand then why some kids are getting referred and why they're not getting referred or why you may be getting late referrals for some kids. So I thought these nine month, uh, the nine month questions were wonderful and they're just right on par. And again, sometimes I get a little jaded. I think, gosh, with language development, everybody's just scaled it back so far. As long as the kid's saying three or four words by the time he's two, pediatricians don't really always notice. And that's just that's terrible when that happens because, again, the later a child's language delay is identified, and we're going to talk about this too, the later it is, the more likely he is to have an ongoing language problem. And our goal in inter early intervention should always be to get as many kids as close as they can uh, to normal limits or as functioning as just as independently and just with as, as just as high level as we can help our little friends get to. And so that's certainly something 
something that we want to think about as well. So let's talk about these nine-month uh, criteria because I want you to know it. So socially, maybe afraid of strangers, clingy with familiar adults, has favorite toys. Now, you may be hearing that as a parent and think, why would I want my kid to be afraid of strangers and clingy with me at nine months? It's because of their cognitive development. We want them recognizing that this is somebody I don't know and this is somebody I do know and I'm more connected to her. She spent time with me. This lady is my mom. We certainly want kids, again, from a very early cognitive perspective to be understanding those differences and to be recognizing within their environment people they know versus people that they don't know. And that's very normal for a child at nine months because they are learning about what? Object permanence <laughs> to start to understand when mommy leaves, oh my goodness, she's going to come back, but I'm not going to see her for a while. And again, object permanence is you, you get that even though the ball is covered up under a blanket, the ball is still there. And again, kids aren't going to always understand that about mom, especially at that developmental level. But that's what they're working on. They're working on object permanence. Who, what, what happens here when I can't see it? And so that's, again, a really fantastic uh, indicator that kids really are learning that and they're differentiating, uh, again, familiar versus new. All right, language milestones at nine months that pediatricians should be asking about. Does your baby understand no? Does he make a lot of different sounds like my, 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 or bye, 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 bye? You know, and again, that's known as babbling. We want kids babbling by nine months. Does he copy sounds and gestures and actions from other people? And I love that a pediatrician should be asking about imitation associated with language at nine months old. And again, as a therapist, I hope you're like, yeah, that that's awesome. We want kids doing that by nine months. But again, I, I started my conversation with sometimes we get a little jaded by this and think, that, that people aren't recognizing the language milestones that they should be recognizing in order for children to reach their maximum potential. And so I, I wanted that imitation piece to, uh, to really talk about that. And the last language milestone there at nine months is that they start to use their fingers to point at things. And so again, this is super, super important uh, for these pre-linguistic skills that we talk about, you know, kid, the skills that kids have to master before they begin to use words. All right, so let's run through this cognitive list. Uh, watch is the path of something as it falls object permanence, meaning that they look for something after we hide it, that they play social games like peekaboo with their parents, they participate in that, they put things in their mouth, and again, why is that important? Because oral exploration is normal <laughs> for a nine-month-old, and when we don't see that, and all the things that happen with oral exploration, they're, they're getting their little mouths ready for feeding with uh, normalizing their gag reflex and all the other things that happen for to have a coordinated uh, chew and swallow so that they can move to solid foods. And so again, some of these areas overlap with other things, but that's, uh, again, from a cognitive perspective, we want kids exploring. We want them learning new things about the world around them. Uh, cognitive, move things smoothly from one hand to the other. You might think about that as a motor skill. And then even uh, pincer grasp, that they are using their index finger and their thumb to isolate little bitty things like Cheerios to pick those up. Other kinds of movement things at nine months. We want kids standing, holding on, getting into a sitting position independently, sitting without support, pulling to standing and crawling. And so I love that those those things are on there. At 12 months, another big 
age for referral for early intervention services. Let's look at the language specifics. And again, sometimes when we share this with parents, they'll think, you're saying my child should have been doing that at 12 months. He's not even doing that at 18 months or 24 months. And again, sometimes parents get really disheartened when we share this information. But we have to say, you know, we've got to figure out where we are <laughs> so that we know where we have to go. And so we've got to get a really really accurate representation of these developmental equivalencies or age equivalencies here so that we can plan our treatment and plan our goals. So let's look at the 12-month things. A child should already be saying at least a couple of words, one or two other words in addition to mama and dada. They can understand and follow simple directions like give me the ball. And again, this would be without that visual representation. But certainly if we have a kid who's trying with gestures, that's, that's on the right way. We also want to look at other markers for language delay, which you mean uh, or even or even language disorder not responding to their names not using many gestures we talked about imitating how a child should have started imitating and copying actions at nine months that's to move him forward so that by the time he's 12 months he's waving bye-bye he's clapping with you he's pointing to things he wants he's shaking his head yes and no probably more no than yes <laughs> but again he's using gestures to communicate his wants and needs and then that big one if we don't see imitation firmly going by the time a child hits his first birthdays, we know there are going to be problems with language. And we certainly know if we get an 18-month-old who's not imitating a lot of different actions, sounds, and words, that child's language skills, at that that's a big predictor for a child's language skills at 30 months. We know there's likely going to be a language delay there too. So again, as an SLP or another therapist in early intervention programs, do we see kids that young? Absolutely. Usually that's tied to our eligibility requirements for our program, so our hands are a little bit tied. But for those of us who are in private practice, um, a guideline that I found when I was doing this research is if there's a six-month or more delay, that's going to warrant treatment, not periodic monitoring, not wait and see. It's treatment when we see a six-month or more gap. All right, so let's go ahead and talk about, move on a little bit, how we can provide this best information and guidance for parents. And again, these may be statistics that you're sharing with a parent in the course of an assessment or an evaluation. And so will that be something that you initiate? Sometimes, but most of the time I found in my practice that it's when parents ask me questions, when they ask me about late talking or is, this, is he officially a late talker or is there a problem with language? Language, or am I just, you know, they want you to say, no, you're making all this up. He's fine. You don't have anything to worry about. But again, that's our best use of this information is to take research-based data and share that with the parents. So again, they can make really, really good decisions. All right, so let's move on and talk about late language emergence. And uh, before we were talking about the definition with late talkers, it really only referred to what? Expressive language, not receptive language. But we do know that there are children who don't have delays in other areas that are as obvious, but they still, because of language, it isn't just talking for them. They also have some difficulty with language comprehension or understanding what they're saying. And so again, with a parent, when a doctor says language delay or speech delay, a parent really, a lot of times, is just thinking about that late talking piece. And so we have to 
really throughout the assessment process help a parent understand that language is a lot more than just talking. It's also, again, kids have to understand words before they can use words. And so that's a little tagline that I use a lot so that parents really understand the magnitude of a receptive language delay. And so again, with late language emergence, a lot of times when we're looking at the research, researchers really separate these kids, even, even if we're looking at kids with language delays, into further differentiated categories, kids with just an expressive language delay or kids who have that mixed uh, language delay. So there are problems with how they understand language or comprehend language, as well as the difficulties with production. Now the production or the expressive part could certainly just be a vocabulary. They don't have as many words as they should have for their age. But lots of times kids who are late talkers, late language emergence, also have problems with sentence structure. So that would be syntax when they start to learn grammar, verb tenses are hard for them. Uh, when they start pronouns are hard for them, including articles, they may be, or a, an, and the, they may be a child who's three and a half or four and still doesn't do that. So that makes their, their speech, their language sound really, really immature compared to other little friends. And so again, even though a kid is a late talker and once we get those words going, there are other things that we have to worry about. And a lot of times as SLPs, we often, kind of think, oh, our tick comes later, phonology comes later, and it certainly does. We always want to prioritize language with that, but the research tells us that kids who are late talkers are more likely to have our tick problems too. And so we should expect that, and that's certainly something that we should share with parents when we talk about speech intelligibility. And so I wanted to mention that as well too. Now, of course, we talked about we're gonna to continue to use our formal standardized assessments to determine eligibility for kids or uh, the other kinds of more formal tests that we use, but let's talk about just some other early signs of late language emergence and we do want to share these with parents with initial contact. Now this might be something that you incorporate uh, if you're in private practice and you're you know I'm sure you already have a way of uh, talking with parents about this kind of pre-screening kids over the phone but other things that you might want to include uh, the, I thought these were significant pieces of information so I want to share them with you and let me just say they're on the handout for today you can get uh, a handout for with today's show with all of this information which will certainly help you in your counseling of parents as you uh, work with them through that assessment and uh, determining eligibility process you can um, use that handout as your reference and you can find the link below there in the YouTube description or go to my website at Teach Me To Talk and uh, look for show 419. All right, so other early signs of late language emergence. We talked about the less than 50 words, no word combinations is that we talked about before. Limited number of consonant sounds. So even if a parent calls and a kid has 100 words, she you know knows because there are things he says all the time, but he still has so much difficulty with uh, consonants. We talked about the uh, age-appropriate consonants in the last show in 418, our PBs, Ms, TDs, Ns, Ks, Gs, and Hs. Those are the consonant sounds that we want kids to master by three. So when a parent calls and they say, well, he's trying to talk, but it's really hard to understand him, and you start to ask, and so constant use is another big thing that we see, uh, uh, you know, just substitutions and omissions of constants by late talkers, or limited number to here is what that real criteria is. So not using as many constant sounds. The other 
big things does not link pretend ideas and actions together while playing so it's the kid who you're playing with him and all of a sudden he stops and he runs out of the room and he goes or even if you're in your therapy room he he just stops what he's doing and he runs to find something else and he brings back the most perfect toy that just goes so wonderfully with what you two are playing and you're thinking oh you've had an idea <laughs> and you went and got that and you are linking these meanings and that is such a good indicator of cognitive development and a lot of times we see that and we think oh that kid is smart but you know the truth is he's typical we want all of our little friends doing that we want all of our little clients thinking about that and anticipating and planning and again that's the essence of cognitive skill development there and so that's when we don't see a kid do that we start to think gosh there may be some play skill problems here and again we know that that's usually linked to a cognitive issue or a motor issue again imitation would be something that we want to ask about a kid who does not imitate words is more likely to be have late language emergence a kid who uses mostly nouns and very few verbs that would be something just the when we're looking at not only how many words does he have but you know are all 75 of his words nouns and he's three that's a problem he can't make a lot of phrases so again that's a that's a problem with language development there a kid who has difficulty playing with his peers that would be a kid who's got some social issues we've all seen as therapists kids who are nonverbal but who are just the most social little things and who have figured out how to compensate and have friends and and do things even without words and so again that's that's a marker when we see that it's not happening and we talked about gestures kids who use few gestures to communicate all right so let's go ahead now and move on and talk about researchers who also have identified they're starting to when we're looking at late talking and late language emergence and we talked about will kids catch up yes lots of kids will catch up but the problem is you don't know that till after the fact it's very difficult at the onset when a parent first comes to you for you to be able to just I hope it's difficult for you to be able to say no he's not gonna need speech he's gonna be caught up he's gonna be caught up by the time he's three he's gonna be caught up by the time he's two he's gonna be we don't know that until after the fact and so research though has given us some indicators to look for and th this is something you need to note as a therapist so uh, early differences that help us know which kids are more likely to catch up than other kids kids who use more gestures to compensate like we just talked about with that previous list so they get that you don't understand them but they are figuring out non-verbal ways so even before they have words they're really good communicators and the second one would be kids who don't have comprehension delays now we talked about that with the language versus expressive language or mixed language delays with receptive delays and expressive delays we know when a kid has to cover that much ground he's less likely to be able to really catch up and so that's important to me as a therapist because I want to tell parents the truth and when they are asking me at 24 months for a kid who has a significant receptive language delay who's not really saying very much at all who also maybe has some other markers who say to me will he catch up you know we still want to be positive with things like I hope so we're gonna do everything we can but research really tells us that kids who have who aren't gesturing who aren't using uh, who, who aren't following directions and again that indicates that cognitive or receptive language delay and who aren't imitating are less likely to catch up and so I hope that you'll figure out a way that you can share that with parents that so that it won't break their hearts and we don't want to drive families away from us and for them to say she was so negative and so mean and I don't want anything to do with her parents can feel those kinds of things when we're not empathetic 
about sharing this kind of information. So you've got to figure out a way to do it so that you are sounding again uh, caring and authentic and so we meet parents where they are in their in this whole process of getting their children evaluated too all right so why is addressing late talking so important so parents will a lot of times just say you know it does he really need therapy or not can i just wait and see can't will he grow out of this well here's what the research says because late talking is often identified or the first sign of late talking it's almost uh, that first little indicator or that first little sign that something is going to, he's going to get another diagnosis. So how Asha put it on the practice portal is late language emergence may evolve into other disabilities. And again, does that mean that they didn't have autism and then all of a sudden they do? No, it just means that late talking was the first thing that parents noticed. And so autism is certainly something that late talking can be the first indication of. Social communication disorder, which would be autism with the social issues, but without the sensory issues, so without the stemming. And again, that's not the official diagnosis, but it's just kind of a or official way to diagnose that, but it's the way that we kind of all think about it professionally. It could be late talking may also evolve into an intellectual disability diagnosis. All that we noticed at the beginning, the parents might say, the only, my only concern, I didn't know anything was really going, going differently than what we expected until I noticed that he didn't start to talk on time. And so that's certainly another kind of diagnosis that a parent might uh, be headed for uh, with a child. Certainly even something like learning disability or attention deficit disorder. And again, those are diagnoses that we don't talk about in early intervention because kids don't get that diagnosis until their school age. But just know, late talking is the first sign of that. So when we don't address late, uh, late talking with toddlers and early preschoolers, that problem just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. So let's talk about how common late talking is or late language emergence. And anytime we look at a diagnosis and anytime we're looking at the research, we always review incidents and prevalence. So incidents would be the number of new cases at any defined period of time, but prevalence numbers are what we normally look at. And this would be the estimated population of children or anybody who would be exhibiting whatever the diagnosis is or the condition is at any given time. So prevalence. So estimates are going to vary greatly with prevalence with late talking. Why? Because of the criteria for late talking. Different studies will use different definitions or different uh, admittance criteria for a child to be included in their study. It's just really kind of hard to compare apples to apples when we're looking at study to study. But prevalence estimates for late language emerges it two or so at 24 months in the U.S. primarily range between 10 and 20 percent. Another interesting uh, statistic here is that kids with, if we're looking at kids with uh, both uh, with expressive language delays, that percentage is going to be higher. When we look at kids, with, which is at about, let me see here, 19 percent. And then when we look at kids that have both mixed and uh, mixed, meaning receptive and expressive language delays, that's only about 13 percent. So that we see that we have a gap there, that there are kids who just have that expressive delay only. But if you'll notice, when we're looking at late language emergence, more kids than then only had the uh, just the expressive delay, so late talking only. There were more kids in that mixed group, both receptive and expressive delays. So as an SLP or as an early intervention professional, 
we need to know that. There are more kids that have problems with both big parts of language than uh, just the expressive piece. Uh, prevalence estimates are higher for children with a positive family history of late talking. So if they say all the boys in our family talked late, <laughs> we know that uh, those, those kids are more likely to be late talkers compared to kids with no family history of late language emergence. Males are three times more likely than females to exhibit late talking or late language emergence. And again, we always know that our caseloads are full of little boys. Anytime we get lots of little girls on our caseload, it kind of makes us think, what is going on here? I usually have more boys. And again, that's because late talking is more common in boys. Doesn't mean that boys talk later than girls as a whole, no. And how do we know that? Because boys are used to standardized tests too. And so their, their scores, if they they if they were lower and again we have some little boys who are very very verbal we don't need to make those broad generalizations but research does say that boys are more likely to have difficulty learning language uh, than girls are. Twins are also more commonly noted to have late language emergence. 38% of twins, and I bet that's been reflected on your caseload too. When we break it down, identical twins have a 48 if, uh, more percent chance of having a language problem than fraternal twins. So that that's at about 32%. Uh, now more statistics, and I'm gonna share this study. I'm going to link it at the bottom of the handout. So if you want access to specifically what this study is, but it's Nina Capone Singleton, and it's called Late Talking, or a wait and see approach to late talking, why that's outdated. Now I probably messed up that title, but if you search something like that, you can get it. But other things that she knows noted in the studies that she reviewed that said a sluggish start to vocabulary acquisition is more likely to be transient if it occurs in isolation and is identified by 18 months. So what's that? So that's if a kid only has an expressive language delay, meaning he's moving along great, he's following directions, he understands words, he can point to pictures and books, he can identify body parts, he's social with people. It's just the talking part. If parents can identify that before 18 months, and if that's the only issue, kids have a really and, and you get on it if parents make some changes whether that's they get them in therapy or they're just doing things at home just parents providing that parent-led intervention which is very effective again kids are more likely to um, not have language be an issue after that because again we're addressing it early enough and that's their only little issue. In contrast toddlers are more likely to persist in language delay the older they are when they're identified and I alluded to that study before and it's from the uh, Capone Singleton Lit Review with that so very very interesting. COVID I think is also going to cause later identification of many 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 children with language delays and disorders so not just that it's a problem with time it's a disordered piece meaning that there are atypical things like we talked about, other uh, or, or uh, issues in multiple developmental domains. I think COVID is probably having a real negative effect on child find and on getting kids identified as early as possible. And so there's an unpublished uh, paper right now that hasn't been peer reviewed yet. And so again, you get a little bit cautious about sharing that information, but it's from Brown University in Rhode Island. And it was done with it during an ongoing, as part of an ongoing study. So they already had the, they already had ways to evaluate the children, all the babies in their area. And so there's a big cognitive decline in children, a big IQ score drop. And that's important for us as SLPs, why? Because cognition drives language. And so when we see that big drop from the average 
average score being right around 100 of a standard score and then dropping down into the 80s, that's you know one standard deviation below what we expected normal or typical or average to be. And so we moved the goalpost on that. And, and that's gonna be something that I know we're gonna talk about for years to come in early intervention and the entire field of any kind of education. All right, so the biggest question that most parents have about late talking is what? Will my child catch up? So here's what research says. And again, this is something you need to commit to memory if you're an SLP. And I'll tell you the truth. Really smart parents are going to ask you about this. And so you've got to know this and be armed with this information so that you're really going to be ready to talk about it when they want to know. So if you are looking at late talkers who are identified at 24 months of age, so they're two, they've met that definition, have less than 50 words, aren't combining, uh, aren't doing their phrases, uh, spontaneously generated phrases, and don't have any other issues. Now, these, this is just for kids who don't have any other issues, right? 50 to 70% of those kids catch up. That is very positive. So half to almost three quarters of those kids catch up according to that study. Now, some parents will hear that and what will they say? I'm going to take my chances. I think he looks good and I think this is an overreaction and we are just not going to do any therapy. Well, are you going to be able to help those parents make a better decision? Maybe if you share this research. Well, research tells us that 50 to 70% of kids catch up and we hope that he's in that range and let's look at these positive predictive factors and you can go over things like comprehension and gestures and talk about things like that. But again, your purpose there is just to provide information. I also want you as a therapist or a parent to know that other studies are not so positive. There's a study, again, it's in that uh, Capone uh, Singletary, whatever, I hope I'm not mispronouncing or I hope I've correctly attributed this to her with her correct last name. She found a study that said 82% of toddlers who failed language screenings at 30 months were not recovering by age six. And so that is the other end, you know, the other end of that is that, gosh, only what, 18% of toddlers who were identified in this study at 30 months uh, still had a language delay at six. And so we've got some disparity there in the studies. So let's talk about these risk factors for late language emergence and make sure, again, that you understand when you have a child who has more risk factors, what does that mean? That means he really needs intervention. We need to provide some intervention. And again, that might be purely parent-led or a combination there of formal therapy services or preschool services or whatever that team decides for him. The more risk factors the kid has, the more that should, should lean toward uh, getting services for that child. So gender, we talked about boys are at higher risk for late language emergence than girls. Motor development, even outside or in the absence of disorders or syndromes that would affect motor development. And again, we're talking about milestones like sitting up, pulling up, crawling, walking. Uh, late talkers were found to be later walkers when they were compared with typically developing kids. So when we see a kid who, who walked later too and we aren't here words. Even when there's no other diagnosis, we know, gosh, this is the kid who's more likely to get that language disorder diagnosis as he gets older. Kids who were preemies, so who had low birth weight, so that's uh, less than 85% of their optimum birth weight or earlier than 37 weeks gestation are at higher risk for late talking. So our kids who were born prematurely. We talked about this before, another big risk factor for late language emergence. And again, kids who might go on to struggle with language after their three 
recurrent ear infections. And so early recurrent otitis media is just terrible for language development for kids. So we need to look at that. Now those were the child specific uh, factors. We talked about birth weight, gender, those kinds of things. Let's talk about family factors. So if there's a family history of late talkers, we talked about a kid is more likely to have a problem learning language too. Maternal education and socioeconomic status. And some therapists and some programs get so freaked out when we start talking about this because you don't really want to really point that out to parents. But when we have kids who, again, lower maternal education level, parents who haven't finished high school, parents who, again, who struggled themselves academically, who have who had their own language issues, like we talked about with family history of late talkers, that's an issue too, and certainly lower resources with socioeconomic status. So that's just a fact. That's certainly something that research has uncovered. Family size here. If there's more than one kid for mom to take care of. She has fewer maternal resources, so greater risk for like talking. And then excessive screen time. And so many therapists get all hot and bothered when I want to act like I want to take away their apps. And I'm not saying that, but I am saying that there is some research that says infant exposure to certain types of media. And it really, I think it would be excessive screen time certainly can inhibit language development. Why is that? They're just looking at the screen. They're not playing. They're not interacting with other people. They're not doing all the things that we know help a child learn how to communicate. So those are family factors as well. All right, so we talked about this before, but let's hit it one more time. What are the big factors that uh, will tell us that kids may not be as uh, quick to catch up? Uh, receptive language delays, gestural delays, and aren't adding new words regularly. So even if they have five words, they've just had five words, you know, for months now. They haven't added any new thing, and that's one indicator that we haven't talked about yet. And so that's certainly something that you can talk with parents about. We can also use those things to turn these around to positive. So when we have a two-year-old who comes to us, or so at 18 months, or how, however old they are, and parent is concerned about late talking, we can share some of these as strengths. So if a kid has good comprehension skills, if she is compensating with gestures, and if she's increasing her vocabulary, even if it's slow, those are very, very positive prognostic indicators. Certainly worth noting with parents and noting in your assessment reports too. And another reason for that is why, because we want to note strengths as well as weaknesses. All right, another study found that the two main correlations between language delay at two and at four. One of the indicators supported something that we've been talking about now for a good 15 minutes. That's the kids who have poor comprehension skills or receptive language delays at, and this, this study says at 20 months, we may or at greater risk to continue to have a language delay at four. So when you have a parent who's asking you, is he gonna grow out of this? If he has a receptive language issue, you can say research says, not, maybe not by four. It's going to take a while. And so talk about that. The other factor in this study that I thought was fantastic that I have not read before, and I, I associate it with parent responsiveness, but it's a little bit different than this. It's a parent's inability to repeat non-words that the child said when he was 20 months old. So why would that be important? We all know that reciprocal imitation is so important, meaning that when a baby says a sound, uh, we want to what? 
imitate him. And why do we imitate him? Because we want to get that back and forth volley going. I think Harvard uh, University had calls that returning the serve. And if I've mispronounced that or butchered that in some way, I so apologize. But it's wonderful research. It talks about what we talk about here at Teach Me to Talk all the time, that social interaction is the foundation for all communication development. And so to get that back and forth going, so when we have parents who aren't good or who don't try or make an attempt or aren't intentional about repeating what their 20-month-olds have said, even if it doesn't make sense, those kids are more likely to have language delays too. And again, I think about that in terms of parent responsiveness, but when I read that explanation, and again, this is from that Capone uh, Singleton Lit Review, that her explanation for this was that a parent may have also had uh, lingering language problems or auditory processing problems to the point that they're not good at nonsense words. And so if the baby says dabagoo, they don't know to say dabagoo. They can't even really process it sometimes to repeat that back to the baby. And so the baby misses out on all that wonderful reciprocity that they're supposed to have. So I thought that was really, really interesting. And she said too, uh, all words, and I think I said this, but let me make sure that I did. All words start as non-words. So if the baby says, ah, and you think the baby wants a drink of your water, you would say what? You would say, water, wawa, yes, water, you say water, water. And the baby goes, ah, and you say, as he's reaching for the water, and you say, yes, water. And so again, when parents aren't naturally good at that, or don't know to do it, their kid is going to be at risk for continued language delay. And this particular study said um, the kids at 20 months, who parents who weren't doing that and had poor language comprehension were not recovered at four. So let's take all this information and in the last few minutes of the show, really, really summarize it. And this, uh, this was from a wonderful article at Hannon. So when we look at late talkers, we have to think about there are two paths a late talker can take. Between 20 and 30% of late talkers do not outgrow it. We know that they're going to go on to get another diagnosis. And we talked about what some of those might be. It might just be language disorder, language or, you know, continuing language delay. We don't get them caught up until school age. So 20 to 30% of late talkers, uh, again, need intervention to catch up. The other part, the other uh, piece between that, that 70 to 80%, those kids do seem to catch up with their peers by the time they're school age. And that is wonderful. That is fantastic. But doesn't mean that a kid doesn't need speech therapy and early intervention because he's going to catch up anyway. Absolutely not. And so we need to talk with parents about that. <coughs> Pardon me. And again, use their use those other risk factors that we talked about and those other predictors that we can use. Let's talk about though that that subset of kids that we really do think about as our little stars on our caseload that we do think well she was just a late bloomer because she caught up, I discharged her even before she was three. I didn't think anything else was going on. Woo, we all did a wonderful job. Yay, goal met. Research still says that those kids may not be completely out of the woods yet as far as development goes because language is such a great predictor for what? 
for academic success. And we know that language is tied to literacy. And we know when kids have been late talkers, they're likely to be late readers. And so we have to be so, so careful about that because reading is just, and language are so critical for every single area of academic success from preschool moving forward. And so when we have a kid who's really struggled with language, who's not communicating very well, doesn't still is having some real subtle issues with maybe language processing or auditory processing, those kids, again, it's going to show up because all of our skills are, are developmental or progressive or sequential, however you want to think about it, and they build on each other. So when we have a kid, too, that, that had some struggles learning language, had some difficulty, even though we thought that he or she caught up, studies tell us that they may continue to struggle as they are school age with vocabulary development, with grammar, with phonology, and again, that would be the rules that we use to make words, uh, with reading, spelling, with understanding uh, understanding word problems, even in math, when you get in third grade, language is real, a language delay will really, really, really significantly start to impact even your scores in math, which you think about as total opposite of language. Because why? The teacher teaches in language, she talks to the kids to teach them how to do. Uh, multiplication, which, you know, comes in at about third grade, but she, uh, word problems also come in. So when we have kids who are really struggling to find, to understand what words mean, and they are missing subtle differences in word problems, they're going to really start to decline even in their math skills. So language and literacy is so important. And again, these are things that we should caution parents about, not to be the bearer of bad news, not to be gloom and doom. Well, we got your kid caught up talking, but guess what? He's still not okay. He's probably going to have trouble learning how to read. We're not going to do that. But we're going to warn them or caution them or say, hey, literacy is so important and I want that to be a big part of our treatment plan even now because we know late talkers may go on to be late readers and I don't want that to happen to your child. I don't want you guys to have to struggle with that if we can do everything we can now to get that off to a better start. And so again, these are the kinds of conversations that we should have with parents. We also know late bloomers who seemingly have recovered from late talking also struggle in other areas like socialization. They still have difficulty using language to communicate with other people. They may also struggle with executive functioning. And again, the more you read about executive functioning, the more you realize it drives every darn thing that all of us do. And why is that? Because it's the listening piece. It's the attending piece. It's the planning piece. All of the things that, again, start as cognitive skills for us when we look at toddlers. Another important difference here between, and uh, this was in the Compone uh, Singleton Lit Review is that there's another difference that researchers have, have uh, noticed that happen with even our late bloomers as they get to be school age is that there are differences in how their brain processes speech that they hear. And so this was actually about preschoolers. Researchers studied three to five year olds who had a history of late talking and noticed that they don't process speech as easily as other children do. So that means that their systems are less mature and so it takes them longer to understand something. It takes them longer to figure things out. And so again, that can significantly inter interfere with their academic progress. Um, so we have to know that late talkers who do seem to grow out of it, which is fantastic, and again, make all of us feel better about ourselves, <laughs> that we gave kids a better start. 
they're still working at a little bit of a disadvantage from a little bit to a lot of a disadvantage when it comes to language and literacy as they uh, get to be school-aged children. Um, let's also talk about another factor for catching up and this is something that may not have been highlighted in your previous reviews of this information. A lot of the late bloomers who catch up are in, uh, they're limited to the demographic of middle and upper class families within two-parent homes and so we know that lots of the families that we serve don't fall into that demographic and so that's certainly something that we need to think about with those studies and me and this means for us that we have to share this information with parents and know it so that we can make good decisions too so i've mentioned that nina capone uh singleton study a lot and i the the thing that she really talked about in the study there were five key points that she, why she feels a wait and see approach to language delays are outdated. Now lots of pediatricians are not doing that anymore as we'll talk about. I'll, I'll, I'll catch up to that in a minute. Let's start with these five and just run through these here. Why is wait and see not appropriate for toddlers or early preschoolers with language delay? Because why? It delays their assessment so and evaluation so that they don't get treatment. So essentially, a late talker can become a child with a language disorder or uh, may even go on to be a late bloomer. But again, we don't know that unless we do the intervention and unless we uh, see again on the other side if that child has caught up again. And so if we delay that referral, we're essentially causing harm because we're not uh, providing services that a child should need. The second reason that wait and see may be outdated or is outdated is because most uh, the idea that most late talkers catch up doesn't necessarily mean that they are the same or completely equal to peers their own age in all aspects of development. And so again, even though we may have closed that expressive gap and they're saying that minimum number of words, remember like we talked about the two-year-old who had 50 words in a preschool classroom versus the two-year-old who has 300 words. There's a gap there. Even though, even though they're all normal, we still know that the child who has less words is probably not going to communicate or understand maybe even uh, or uh, participate. Let's go with that. As well as other kids who have that larger vocabulary. <clears throat> and so uh, one of the things that I like that she said in her uh, that study is that late bloomers have weak endowment of language ability. And so again, even though they may have caught up on te some test, we still know that they're gonna, uh, going to struggle. And again, we talked about that slower neural processing and that will affect academic performance. The third reason a wait and see approach is outdated is like we talked about before, it impacts early socialization and school readiness. And honestly, it places some late talkers who don't receive any treatment at risk for a lifelong disability and that just means the longer you have a problem the more it can intensify and magnify and what started out as a mild delay at two with no services can be a significant delay by the time a child is five and gets to kindergarten and we've all seen that and we hear stories of therapists who get a kid just dumped in their laps at kindergarten who pretty much minimally verbal or even nonverbal and hasn't had any service. And so it happens. And so we have to really think about those kids in the difference that three years of services uh, could have made. The fourth reason here is 
it's no longer standard practice when we look at medical and education fields as a whole to make late referrals for uh, kids who aren't talking. And so we talked about before that American Academy of Pediatrics recommends that all kids who are under three be referred for further developmental medical evaluation, not screening, further evaluation if a toddler fails the screening in their office. So we talked about those best practice ages, uh, nine months, 18 months, 24 and 30 months. The CDC, so uh, America, the Center for Disease Control, they do more than COVID. <laughs> One of the things that they, uh, they address everything. And so again, their recommendations for, uh, they've done a lot with autism. So their Act Early campaign really pushed the American Academy of Pediatrics to standardize uh, screenings for autism for well baby checks at 18 months and at 30 months. And so that's, we see these other fields also recognizing the importance of early intervention for children who are at risk and children who already demonstrate a language delay or late talking. And so certainly that's, uh, we want to be sure that we are uh, up to this that standard as well. And then the fifth reason why a wait and see approach is outdated is because of the advances in uh, the sciences of brain development, language development disorders, and epigenics. And so what does that mean? That means that all the research supports earlier identification and earlier intervention so that we can close that gap. Again, what we talked about, what is just a six month delay doesn't grow into a 12 month delay and an 18 month delay. And again, it's just a widespread misconception when uh, a program or a physician or whoever's doing it says, let's wait and see about this language delay. You don't need to, you don't need to worry about him until he's three or don't worry about him until he's two. When we know that there are issues going on, we need to do everything we can to, again, prepare parents and help parents, even if they're not in our program officially, even if they don't really meet that eligibility, we've got to help parents uh, understand the, the potential here and not just have a false uh, sense of security that their late talker is going to catch up. So let's finish out here with protective factors. And so this puts us talking about a lot of negative information, but what are the positive protective factors? What are things that can help children who are at risk for late talking or children who are even identified and who have already begun intervention? And that's the very first thing is early identification and uh, intervention can mitigate the impact of risk factors so that we know when we went back to that list of gender and all the family factors and all those other, uh, even individual differences for a child, we know that we can make a difference in early intervention. And so that's certainly something that most parents want Want that. They say, I, I want to get this taken care of now. So let's look at three other protective factors beyond therapy. And these are fantastic. And these are things that I'm going to really pay more attention to in my practice. And this is why we do the research that we do or, or why researchers do the work that they do is that they can pass this along to us as practicing clinicians and as therapists who counsel parents and who give advice. Maybe, uh, you know, that's something that you don't think about yourself as doing, but we certainly need to do this. So let me share with you these two big things that are big protective factors and things that we should get going in our little guys who are on our caseload. Reading and sharing books with infants daily. So why is that important? And again, read to your child is such a basic recommendation. And I think a doctor can just say it or a home health care worker or what, whatever, what, whoever visits, you know, some, I think that's what they're called for uh, out, outside the U.S. Whoever would be responsible for you for and helping you uh, with your child's health and developmental concerns. 
it goes beyond reading. <laughs> You've got to be checked in and involved. And I just did a whole series of shows about that with four, shows 415, 416, and 417 and how to make books better for toddlers with language delays. And we talked so much about how language and literacy are just intertwined. I mean, the milestones are practically the same for kids under three or certainly even under five. And so go back and listen to those shows for some specifics for that. But I think why reading is so important is because parents are interactive with their child. They've closed off other distractions. So when they're reading a book, parents aren't busy with other things. They're not multitasking with checking their phone or whatever else, taking care of other children, whatever else there could be. That's just that one-on-one time between that parent and that child. So it's so great. They're also focused on language because with books, even when there's just a picture book or a story, parents are still pointing at the pictures, still asking children to identify the pictures when they say, where's the dog? Where's the car? Show me the daddy. Those kinds of things. They're focused on language. And again, another reason reading is so important for kids with language delays is because there's a visual cue. (laughs) It's built in. The book has pictures. There's so many pictures there to support what those words mean. And so visual cues are there. So that's why reading is so important. The other part of this was uh, the other uh, protective risk factor here Uh, would be providing lots of play opportunities for parents and so really teaching parents how to play and we do a ton of that here at Teach Me to Talk and so many of our podcasts have been focused on teaching children how to play and if you want more specific information about that show 405 was a show that um was a part of our autism podcast series and a lot of kids who have difficulty learning how to play uh that that really is um indicates a strong likelihood of the later diagnosis of autism. And so that's why that play is such an important part of helping kids who are are at risk for that and who are showing signs or markers beyond uh, language delay. And my best resource for that is 405, but it's also Teach Me to Play With You. This is the very first uh, therapy manual that I wrote uh, back in 2010, and every time I read it, I still think, oh, I forgot that game, or oh, I forgot that strategy, and it's just a wonderful guide for parents, particularly when kids are in this early toddler phase, and just to really, like we talked about with reading, get that social interaction going and get that language piece going. So that would be another resource that I want to recommend to you. All right, that's it for today. I just want to thank Thank you so much for participating and listening in the podcast. We are so grateful for you. If you have not already subscribed to uh, my YouTube channel, I would ask that you do that now because that really, really helps us out. All right, I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech language pathologist, and thank you so much for joining me for Teach Me to Talk's podcast.